All right, folks, let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'll get started whenever they're done. Take your time, we're good. All right, folks, welcome. Thank you all for being here. Uh, plenty of handouts, so if you don't have a copy, uh, Jeff should have one for you. Um, we're doing kind of a one-off class today. We're in this rhythm of, of uh, Pastor Walton being gone um, a couple of Sundays, and then I'm going to be gone two weeks from today, uh, and so taking a little bit of breaks here. But um, if you're getting those pastoral letters uh, that I'm writing, that's been one of my... One of my favorite ways to spend time lately, and if you know also kind of what I've been wrestling with personally and lack of sleep, I've had a lot of time to write, uh, but it's been a real privilege to do these. And the pastoral letters that we've been working through right now are the one another's in scripture. Uh, so hopefully you're tracking with those. If you're not getting those weekly and, and sometimes more than weekly emails uh, from me, please let me know. That means your email address is not in the system or, or it's going to your spam or whatever, and we can try to get that worked out. You can talk to Carol Ingram about that. Uh, but we're working through the one another's in Scripture, uh, particularly in the New Testament. Uh, and these are our commandments, instructions for how we are to treat one another within the body of Christ. Why are the one another's so important? A lot of right reasons here. It's the body of Christ. <laughs> Good. Good. Everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to everyone who belongs to Jesus. And so we are part of each other. And, and so when we hurt each other, we hurt the whole body of Christ, right? Why else do these one another's matter? Good. We have a mutual obligation and privilege of building one another up in the body of Christ. Why else are they important? Say that again. Good. I'm going to come back to that. What was the one said over here? Good. So, you know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, historically, they've been broken down into what are called the two tables of the law. So you look at the first four commandments and they're explicitly vertical. So what are the first four commandments? Love the Lord your God. No other gods for me. <laughs> Good. Somewhere we got them all in there. All right. But they're explicitly vertical. Those could be lived out in a world without anybody else. Right. So if you were the only person on the face of the earth, you could live out the first four commandments. And sometimes that would just be really easy, wouldn't it? Be the only person. I can be so holy until I deal with people, you know. <laughs> So you get to the fifth through 10th commandments and they're explicitly horizontal. Now, don't overplay that because the ways we treat each other are actually a reflection of our, our disposition towards God. If we, were, we are not right with God, we will not treat each other well. Um, but commandments five through 10, known as the second table of the law, deal explicitly with how we treat each other. And so if we think we're quite holy, but we treat each other quite badly, uh, our interactions with each other betray us. And so the one another statements that we find, and there's more than 50 of them, uh, I sent you a list of 52 of them this week so that you can have one a week to work on. Um, but those one another statements govern how we treat each other in the body of Christ. And if we mistreat each other in the body of Christ, we are not living our lives to the glory of God. 
we, we are derelicting his commandments. Um, the one and others are critical to maintaining the peace and purity of the church. So if you've joined this church or you've joined a similar church, you probably took a membership vow that you will pursue the peace and purity of the church. If you are not practicing these one another's, if you're gossiping, if you're slandering, if you're hurting each other, if you're refusing to forgive each other, you're actually breaking your membership vows in the church. But I love what Michael pointed to as well. It's, it's a testimony to the watching world because you see, I mean, just go on the internet for five minutes. You see the bitterness of our world and the vileness of our world in, in how people interact. Just read the comments thread. I don't know if y'all have heard this story, but Aaron and, and Rachel Halbert, our missionaries, Aaron's a really good friend of mine, they're in Honduras. They um, did a snowflake adoption. That's where you adopt embryos. Um, these embryos had actually been um, frozen through the process of IVF. They had been frozen for 15 years. Um, they adopted these three embryos. Aaron and uh, Rachel are, are snow white, they're, they're white as can be, and Rachel gave birth to three um, black babies, black triplets. There was an article written about them in, um, I can't remember what website, famous website picked it up. The vitriol towards them was unbelievable. Oh, you're the white savior, huh? That's what, that's what one side said. The other side said, basically they'd be better off dead. It was just absolutely vitriolic. That's what we see in the world. The church ought to be an amazing contrast of what we see in the world. So that's what Jesus says in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you, we would insert all sorts of things in there, you know, if you have your right theology. That's a good one, right? If you are morally upstanding. That's a good one. No, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's how important this is. Of all the one another's, and hopefully you took some time to read through those 52 one another's that I sent you, and you've seen some of the different ones that I've sent out over the last few weeks. Maybe you've studied this before. What is the hardest one another, in your opinion? Yeah. So I've written two weeks in a row on forgiveness, and part of the reason is I got more feedback on those two, on how difficult uh, forgiveness is than any of the others we've we've. Uh, we've talked about. So, you know, you can welcome one another and greet one another and show hospitality to one another. And that just takes a little bit of work. Forgiveness takes a whole overhaul of your soul because many of us have long-standing bitterness towards others for things that have been said or done to us. And so I think of all the thing, all the one another's, forgiveness is the most difficult for us. Um, there, there are some of you who are trapped in unforgiveness because of things that have happened to you in your past or the things you perceive happened to you. You know, you hear those things. Uh, sometimes I can have a five minute conversation with people, meet them for the first time, and I can tell a lot about, and y'all can too. It's not some super gift I have. Y'all pick it up on it too. You can tell within five minutes a lot of times if somebody is, is a walking wounded person who is carrying around deep pain of unforgiveness because of things that happened to them, that their father did, that their mother did, that a former spouse did, a current spouse did, that their parent, uh, their children did. Um, and what happens is when we allow ourselves to get stuck in unforgiveness, it's as if the clock stops and everything about our world is defined by that past pain. I, I've, 
Uh, I love this story. It's, it's a heartbreaking story, but the story of a, a, a professor of mine who went to visit a lady in his church, and she had lost her son. He had been uh, killed. And he looked at the clock, and he said, uh, Ma'am, would you like me to change your clock for you? It's, it's wrong. And she said, No, I leave it there because that's the time that's the moment that time stopped for me. And it was the moment she found that, out that her son had been killed. Some of you have moments where your life cannot move beyond it because of pain. And I don't, I don't downplay that pain at all. But what we're going to spend time thinking about today is how do we as Christians deal with pain, deal with conflict to get to the point of forgiving others? Uh, and so we're going to look at that. We're going to be looking at, at, at forgiveness and more broadly at how we handle conflict. Before we get started, let's pray. Lord God, we pray that this time would be helpful to us. We long to be a body of believers that loves each other well. And, and the biggest obstacle to loving each other well is each other. Um, it is hard. I, I'm hard to love at times. Everybody in this room has moments where we are hard to love. And so it takes work. And at times it's going to take forgiveness uh, as we negotiate through difficulty and conflict and hurt and heartache. Uh, Father, I pray that this would be a time that is helpful for us individually and corporately that you would teach us to deal well with conflict. In Christ's name, amen. One of the most influential books I've read in the last 10 years is Ken Sandy's The Peacemaker. How many of you have read it? Okay. I was hoping more of you had. Some of you I know have listened to lectures on it. I've got his lectures from a class that he taught, and those are really, really good, and I'm glad to share those with anybody that would like them. Um, but I would say, and I'm going to get into why in a minute, this is one of the most influential books I've read in, in ministry. And I almost didn't read it. And the reason is it was on bestsellers list at the Christian bookstore. And I have a natural aversion to anything on the bestsellers list at Christian bookstores. And I think you should too, honestly. Most of it's junk. And if it's in the Christian section on the checkout at Walmart, most of it's junk. And I would encourage you not to read it. That's why we provide books here, so that you won't buy the stuff that's on the bestsellers list at, at Lifeway and other places, right? So I want you to have good books to read. And I almost didn't read this book because it was so popular and I just thought it must be junk. It was actually very, very, very good. I'm so glad I read it. There's a lot of practical wisdom in this book, particularly how to work through the difficulties of conflict and how to forgive those who have hurt us. But I want to start by emphasizing one point of this book, and that is that you and I are stewards of our conflicts. We are stewards of conflict. So what is a steward? Someone who takes care of things. Good. What else? Yep. Manage something that belongs to somebody else, right? Now, is the steward's goal simply to return it the way you found it or to improve it? Parable of the Talents is going to tell us that you're actually supposed to improve it. You're supposed to make the, whatever is entrusted to you, you're, you're to make more from it. Um, naturally, when we think of stewardship, we think of what? money, of course. But all of life is stewardship, everything from your physical health uh, to your relationships. Everything you have, you ought to be saying, God, you have entrusted this thing to me. How do I use it to your glory? How do I improve it? 
I had never thought before of conflict as a stewardship, but that is one of the main premises of this book, The Peacemaker, is you are a steward. And let's talk through that theologically. Uh, by the way, just a, a quick comment. Ken Sandy is a PCA ruling elder, and so theologically he's very much on the same page as us. And he makes the point that if we believe God is sovereign over every molecule in existence and every event in our lives, and if at times we find ourselves in conflict, then what must be true? If God is sovereign, if we find ourselves in conflict, what then must be true? Our conflicts are part of God's sovereign plan for our life. And I know that kind of pushes back against the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that all God wants for you is to be happy, healthy, and, and, and uh, uh, prosperous. This pushes back against that. At times, God wants for you to face affliction because there are simply things that you and I do not learn in prosperity that we do learn in affliction. And sometimes when I'm in the midst of affliction and, and trying to learn the lessons, I'll say, God, why didn't you just teach me this? You know, couldn't you teach me this an easier way? And I realized, oh, he's been teaching me this for years. I just haven't paid attention until things got hard. And so God often uses affliction and difficulty to teach us things that we need to learn. So when we find ourselves in conflict, this is where we need to flesh out our theology. When I am in conflict, it is not a matter of coincidence or bad luck. It is a matter of the sovereignty of God everything that is playing out in our lives. And it might be because somebody else is a total jerk, but it is playing out because we have a sovereign God. Let me, let me try to display that a little bit to you uh, from Scripture. Open your Bibles to Genesis 50. We'll start there. I, I fleshed this out this week some in our uh, series pastoral letters this week, but uh, it's the story of Joseph. Now, I want you to get this paradigm right. There is, in contemporary evangelical Christianity, a desire to get God off the hook for bad things. And so people downplay the sovereignty of God because they feel like, you know, if God is in charge of bad things, then he must be a bad God. Well, that's utterly foolish. But even if it were true, would you rather go through hard things and think they may be utterly meaningless? They may be utterly pointless. I may be suffering for nothing because God's not in control of this. Or would you rather go through suffering and be able to say, whatever I'm going through, I can trust that God is using it to accomplish something good. See, if we get God off the hook for bad things in our life, then we actually end up with meaningless things. We end up in a position that affliction and trial may actually be utterly pointless. The scriptures teach a very different picture. God never tries to get himself off the hook for hard things. So Genesis 50 verse 20, give me a quick background on what's happened with Joseph to this point. Good. That was Genesis 37 through 50, perfectly summarized. Well done. Um, <laughs> uh, he has every reason to be mad. I said that in this week's letter. If anybody had a justification to be unforgiving, it was Joseph. I mean, he had terrible things happen to him. 
and he is confronted with his brothers and now he has the authority that he could do something really bad to them. Those of you who have bitterness towards others and you have dreamed about getting even with them, imagine being in Joseph's shoes and he can really do anything he wants to and not get in trouble for it. He's got all the power. So pretty much everything's fair game. What's he going to do to him? Genesis 50 verse 20. This is totally worth memorizing if you have not. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It doesn't even say you meant it for evil, but God figured out how to use it for good. That's a a heresy called open theism that God is sort of learning as he goes and he's trying to make everything right, but there's not a plan. Joseph's saying here, you did all sorts of evil things and through it all, God was working out a perfect plan. Now the perfect plan really, it wasn't so much about Joseph's family being able to have food by going to Egypt. It wasn't really even about that. It was actually about preserving the line of Jesus Christ. That's what God was doing. Everything about the sovereignty of God points back to Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that in a second. Flip over to Psalm 115. As pastors, we always have certain go-to verses that we're always coming back to. This is one for me. Psalm 115 starts off, uh, not to us, O Lord, not to us, to your name, give glory. In verse 2, the psalmist uh, quotes the nations. The nations say, where is their God? See, the nations all had little idols that they could worship, and Israel didn't have that. Yahweh was an invisible God. So the nations would say, where is their God? And the psalmist responds, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Everything that unfolds in the world is unfolding according to the perfect plan of God. Now, I get that there are times where hardship comes into your life, and it is hard to imagine that anything good can come of it. I cannot imagine that this was God's plan. If you end in that place, then you end in a place of hopelessness. If you trust that God is a sovereign God working his purposes out in his providence, then you end up in a place of hopefulness that whatever we are going through will ultimately be redeemed to the glory of God. Flip over to Isaiah 45, verse 7. Would somebody read that for us? Good. God is just saying, hey, I'm God. (laughs) You know, this is my job description. I'm in charge of all things. If I'm not in charge of these things, then I'm really not God. So he's emphasizing his sovereignty there, even in calamity, even in difficulty. Now flip over to our go-to. This is for most of us, your go-to when you think about hard things, God working them for good. Turn to Romans 8, 28 and 29. And I say 29, knowing that most of you aren't going to turn to 29 naturally, but 29 is as important as 28. So somebody read 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to Boy, that just sounds nice, doesn't it? So even unbelievers will give you that advice. I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. Oh, that's a really great thought. That's so, it, it is. Yeah, everything will all work out. Good. I feel totally better. Um, 29 explains why. Somebody read 29. Son, 
Good. So you've got according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? Is his purpose to make me happy and healthy and prosperous? That's what American evangelical Christianity is going to tell you. That's not what God tells you. His purpose in verse 29 is to conform you to the likeness of Christ. So what is he doing in all the affairs of your life, believer? He is crafting you to be like Jesus Christ. He is cutting away everything that is not a reflection of Jesus Christ. Cutting hurts, doesn't it? Pruning hurts. But everything about us is being shaped by God. If we belong to him, that he might conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so when Ken, when Ken Sandy says, we are stewards of our conflict, this is what he's saying. God is working all these affairs in your life sovereignly and your duty is to return them back to him as an act of worship by being conformed to the image of his son. Um, I'm a huge fan of Ken Sandy. I've, I've read a lot of his books. I've listened to a lot of his lectures. I've taken classes that he's taught. But I want to tell you a quick story. It's super embarrassing. All right. So it's a fun one to tell. Last June, I was traveling from here uh, on a Sunday evening. I don't like traveling on Sunday, but I had to be in Memphis for General Assembly. I was serving on a committee, had to be there by 10 a.m. Monday morning. So I flew out from Savannah Sunday night. Sundays tend to be long days for pastors anyway. So I flew out Sunday night and my flight got delayed. Um, And uh, we made up a little bit of time between Savannah and Atlanta, but then I had to... uh, we landed and I had 25 minutes to catch my plane from, uh, from Atlanta to Memphis. If I miss it, I'd either have to drive through the night and then sit through all day of meetings, um, or uh, the next flight out was like 8 a.m. and I would, I would uh, be very late for my meetings. We land, we make up time, I've got 25 minutes. I'm looking at the map of the Atlanta airport and of course it's not, here's my, terminal and here's the terminal I need to or gate I need to get to it's they're this far apart it was a little over a mile so they moved me up to the front of the plane so that as soon as uh, we uh, deboard I can take off running I had all my bags with me everything was fine so I get to the front of the plane the jetway gets stuck so they can't let me off the plane I'm sitting there looking at it they just won't let me across um, so I'm down to 20 minutes and then I'm down to 15 minutes so I've got 15 minutes to run about a mile carrying all my bags uh, Take off running. Um, I have a new sympathy. I always thought people that ran across airports were weird. I have a new sympathy for them. Uh, but I ran across the airport. I get there. Um, I get to the door, and it is shutting as I'm getting there. Um, and I ask the gate agent, can I get, can I get past you, please? Um, I didn't know that once they shut the gate, they cannot reopen it. That's federal law. Dudley could probably tell us that because he knows all about airplanes. <laughs> So I asked the gate agent, okay, is there anything we can do? And he said, not my problem. So starting to get a little bit angry. Uh, go to the next gate agent, and she was very kind. And she says, I've got you, I'm going to try to get you on the next flight, go. She said, it leaves in 20 minutes. It was next to the one that I had come off of. So I had another one-mile run. I was tracking it at this point, because I at least wanted credit for it uh, on Strava. <laughs> So I'm tracking it. I'm running back across the airport. I'm soaked in sweat. I'm getting kind of madder as I go. I have Stephanie on the phone just explaining what's going on. I'm, I'm pretty ticked at that point. Um, I was, you know, Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin. I sinned. Um, Stephanie said, just, 
just trust God. He will use this in some way. And, and, no, you don't want to hear that in the middle of just anger. And so I, I really, whatever. All right. So we hang up and I keep running and I get to the gate and I finally get, and I'm soaked in sweat at this point and I'm breathing hard and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of upset. And uh, the, the gate agent looks at me and uh, I said, can you verify that I'm on this flight? And she said, it's going to be a surprise. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it's going to be a surprise? And I don't remember if I said anything after that. Um, I may have blacked out. I can't remember. But I, I, was, I was very angry. Um, and I, I, she said, I can't. I'll, I'll tell you if you're on this flight once everybody else is on it. So, um, so I'm sitting there, and I'm pretty much seething at this point. And uh, it's been an 18-hour day by that point. I've still got a couple more hours of travel. Uh, so I'm just mad. And I hear that somebody behind me say, is everything okay, sir? And I look up, and it's Ken Sandy. And I recognized his voice. I recognized him from the classes I had taken. And I said, no, not, everything's not okay. And, and he said, what's wrong? I said, I'm not being a good steward of my conflict. <laughs> and he looked at me, he's like, what are you talking about? And I explained it, and God was so gracious. We've formed a good friendship. We stay in touch. He's been a tremendous encourager. We spent a lot of time together that week. Um, it was such a cool living parable of being a steward of your conflict. God used all those frustrations. If I had caught my flight, I never would have met Ken Sandy. All those things uh, he used for my good, and he confirmed a lot of things in my own heart as an Ebenezer. The question I want to ask you as we think about conflict in our lives, and these may be conflicts you're facing today with somebody in the church, with, with a neighbor, with a family member. These may be conflicts from 50 years ago, and the person that you have a conflict with may not be alive anymore, may not be in your life. Are you using your conflicts as a good steward to the glory of God? If you want to do that, then you have to follow biblical principles. Um, as Christians, harboring anger and conflict in bitterness and being unforgiving is simply not an option. Look with me at Ephesians 4 for a moment. There is a such thing as righteous anger. Most of us aren't very good at it. Most of us, our anger becomes unrighteous. But Paul says, starting at verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Ah, so if you let anger fester, you are giving opportunity to the devil. Look down uh, at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How, how am I supposed to forgive? How am I supposed to forgive what happened to me? And you all have these. You, you all have different things that I don't know about, maybe nobody else knows about, that you struggle to forgive. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Christians do not have the option of, of harboring unforgiveness. It'll destroy the church. I don't know what was going on in Philippians 2 with Euodia and Syntyche. There's some conflict, and Paul addresses it. But it seems that there's concern that it's going to do damage to the church. Harboring unforgiveness and bitterness will destroy the church. But not only that, it'll, it'll destroy you. 
It, it will destroy you to stew in unforgiveness and bitterness. And it won't go away on its own. You need the gospel for that. That's why Jesus says to us that we're to be peacemakers. And, and Ken Sandy has a spin on that where he says, you're, you're one of three things. You're either a peace faker, you pretend everything's okay. You're a peace breaker, everywhere you go there's conflict. Or you are a peacemaker, and the Christian must be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They're recognizable as the children of God. Let's um, talk about a four-part strategy for dealing with conflict. This is on your sheet. Just four things to think through as you're dealing with conflict and struggling. This is going to get us to the point of, of working to forgiveness, but it's broader than that. First is glorify God. And all of this I, I get from the book, The Peacemaker. Um, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him. What's that last word? <laughs> okay, does that mean in every circumstance? Even when I just want to stew in my unforgiveness and bitterness and anger? <laughs> yes. Does that mean even when people have said rude things to me that I am struggling to forgive? Yeah. Yeah. Every, added, every context of your life falls into that category of forever. We, think of it, we tend to think of it forward in, in terms of eternity, but it also applies to right now. Whatever you are doing, your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So you're in the midst of conflict with your neighbor or a coworker or your spouse. You know what feels really good when you're in the midst of conflict? Winning. Oh, winning just feels good. And sometimes the conflict becomes secondary and the real thing becomes our pride. Your chief end in the midst of conflict is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Um, and so what does that look like? Well, with God's help, I'll, I'll seek to glorify him by depending on and drawing attention to his grace. Um, you're going to think I have a, some weird man crush on Ken Sandy by the end of this lesson, um, and that's fair. Uh, but one of the points he said, uh, we were at lunch one day, and one of the points he said is oftentimes when two Christians are in conflict, there is no discernible evidence that these are gospel people in the way they fight. He was telling me about a mediation. He, he is a trained mediator. He was a lawyer, and then he went full-time into Christian mediation. So he goes into situations where churches are about to split, where pastors and sessions can't get on the same page. He goes in there, and he said there's always one question that really changes the course of the, the discussion, and that is, how would this be any different if Jesus were not resurrected from the dead? How would you be handling this different? So think about the last conflict you were in. And it may have been a fight on the way here with your spouse. How would you handle that differently if Jesus Christ were not resurrected from the dead? In a lot of cases, you'd handle it the exact same. Because sometimes when we get into conflict, we forget all about the glory of God. And it just becomes about our pride, about winning. Um, if Jesus Christ is resurrected, and indeed he is, then we ought to handle conflict differently than the rest of the world. The first thing we ought to do 
is think about our conflict. And again, it may be a present conflict or it may be one that you have been carrying bitterness with you for 20 years. Remember, you will stand before God one day. If you are in Christ, you will stand before him and receive his grace and you will go to be with the sheep. You will not go to be with the goats. But will he look upon this situation of how you handled conflict and be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant for how you handled it, for how you handled a disagreement, for how you handled things that frustrate you to no end about your spouse? Will he be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? If we are not careful, if we handle conflict like the rest of the world does, he will never say that to us. But if we handle, if we steward our conflict to the glory of God, then we can handle it in such a way that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Second, get the log out of your own eye. So glorify God. Second, get the log out of your own eye. And one of the things you got to do is decide, is this really worth fighting over? Um, most of the conflicts we find ourselves in, if by the next day we think that was really stupid that we fought about that, wasn't it? We were just being totally petty. Um, Proverbs says it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Now, that doesn't mean if somebody's sin is destroying them or destroying others that we just ignore it. But most things that we get bent out of shape about, it really points back to our own immaturity. And so we need to learn to get the log out of our own eye. What are some of the questions we ought to ask when we're in the midst of conflict or when we're harboring unforgiveness to deal with the log in our own eye before we start to worry about the other person? Okay, good. Am I, am I entitled to cast a stone there? Good. What else? What did I do? Yeah. Yeah, what did I do? Um, you know, when we get mad, most of the time, it's because somebody is messing with our idols. You know that? Most of the time when we get mad, somebody's messing with our idols and we don't like it. Our idols of comfort or routine or control our wealth you know all sorts of things when I get mad the first thing I need to ask is is there an idol that this is uprooting in me why, why am I so mad about this why am I still carrying this with me after 10 years 20 years 30 years what idol is there in my life that's getting messed with and I'm upset about it you know that that's one of the first questions we ought to ask um, another question we ought to ask is, what am I so afraid of? What am I so afraid of about this? Am I afraid that they're right? That, that's it a lot of time. I'm, I'm just scared you're right with what you said about me. I'm scared you're going to expose me for who I really am. All these things happen under the surface in the midst of conflict. These, these are good questions. Where do I put my trust? Am I trusting in what other people thought about me? And so when you said something that I took as demeaning, it really hurt my pride. These are, I think it's David Pallison, you may remember, x-ray questions. Do you remember it, Danny? 
Have you ever read that? It's a great article. X-ray questions are, what is actually going on underneath the surface here that I'm getting so upset about? What are my idols that are being exposed by this? Um, and so the first question, yeah. Um, this is why premarital counseling, one of the things I emphasize is Christ must be central because if he is not central, you're going to look to each other to be that Christ figure. You are going to put expectations upon each other that neither of you can live up to, and you're going to fight all the time. You're going to look to each other to be what only Jesus can be. When Jesus Christ is central to our lives and he's the one that's fulfilling our expectations, then we can actually love each other and acknowledge, hey, you are not God to me. Therefore, your failings don't have to devastate me. And I don't have to, 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 to be upset with you every time you don't meet my expectations. It's a great point. Um, what are other ways that we need to get the, um, the plank out of our own eye? Good. So is it actually just me or the personality? Yes. Yeah. You know, another area to get the the log out of our own eye may not so much be about what the original offense is, but how I've handled it since. You may have been an innocent victim of what happened, but if you allow it to fester in your heart and lead to bitterness and unforgiveness, it is now a sin issue in you. Um, you may think your unwillingness to forgive shows how immature the other person was, how sinful they are. But actually, lugging around what others have done to you and harboring unforgiveness and anger and bitterness actually displays to the world how immature you are and how immature I am. Um, It actually shows our sin in full display when we refuse to forgive others. Ask a hard question here. I get this question asked to me every couple of months. If I am unwilling to forgive somebody, should I take the Lord's Supper or not? That's a hard question, isn't it? All right, what do you think, Hillary? I think no. Why? I'm going to carry it. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, suffer 
under it when God's already done, he's already paid yeah. something for that sin. We don't need to pay for it again. And, uh, and if we refuse to forgive, we're, we're putting ourselves above Christ who forgives sins. If we had read a little bit earlier in Genesis 50, we started at verse 20, but in 19, Joseph says, am I in the place of God? In other words, I don't have a right to harbor unforgiveness against you. Yeah, you did me wrong, but I don't have that right. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So going back to what Hillary just said, I completely agree with your answer. I think we need a little bit of nuance. There are some of you in here who struggle to forgive people. You have things that you're carrying with you, um, and maybe you have been for years and years. There's a difference between struggling to forgive and being unwilling to forgive. So I, I may be, there are people uh, and events in my past that I struggle to forgive. And they come up in my mind, and you have these too. Something triggers that response, that memory. And there may be a gut reaction to feel anger and want to get even with that person. Repent in that moment. Repent, 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 repent. If you're unwilling to forgive, you're actually okay with it there. I, I like holding on to my unforgiveness. I like feeling like you have wronged me. I like knowing that you're going to pay for it. In fact, I want to make you pay in this life, so I'm going to gossip about you and slander you and all those things. That's part of the hardness, the difficulty of anger. Anger is like a fire that it needs constant fuel. So you have to think about it and you have to rehash what that person's done. And one of the great ways to fuel the fire is to go to Tom and say, hey, Tom, do you know what she did to me? And then Tom gets mad too and the fire gets burning again. Sometimes we do that because we want to see that person suffer. Sometimes we do it because we want to protect ourselves from trusting that person again. So we just need to keep anger burning and burning and burning and burning. Um, by the way, this is not a lesson I could have taught 10 years ago. It's a lesson I've taught by seeing more of my own life, but also watching people walk through these things and seeing them play out in real time. One thing to remember is that our sin put Christ on the cross. And when we're, we've been sinned against, and you know, all of us, many of us have really serious sins against us, but we weren't put on the cross by this other person. We're alive and we don't need to carry that. We're hurting ourselves, we're not hurting the other person. So going back to our question, should I take the Lord's Supper if I am unwilling to forgive somebody? I would say no, because you may not be a Christian. Whoa, 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 you're saying if I don't forgive, I'm not a Christian. No, it's not so much what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you can hold what somebody else has done against you to such a degree and with so much wrath, that you want to hold on to that for the rest of your life, you are unwilling to lay that down at the foot of the cross and repent and forgive that person, then you have no idea what it costs Jesus Christ to die for your sins. That's the whole point of uh, the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, isn't it? So you, it, it's a silly parable. It's intended to be. This man, the king, is settling debts and he calls a servant in, and the servant owes him, well, by whatever calculations, around $6 billion. <laughs> who, would, who would do that? And, and he can't pay it back, and he pleads, and the king forgives him. 
Okay, obviously this is a picture of grace. It's extravagant. It's prodigal grace in a sense. It's lavish. It's unimaginable that, that, that God would forgive us our sins. But then the ridiculous part of that parable is what happened next, where the, king, uh, where the servant goes out. He finds a guy that owes him a substantial amount of money, but it's a you know, reasonable amount of money. You, you can actually understand why somebody uh, might lend somebody that kind of money. And he beats the guy because he won't pay him back. He has no idea how much he's been forgiven. If you are stewing in anger and bitterness and do not desire to forgive others for what they've done for you, it is a picture of how little you understand the gospel. And I would urge you not to take the Lord's Supper because you may not be a believer. Those of you with tender consciences, be very careful because I know some of you are not going to come to the table today because you wonder, well, does this mean I'm unwilling to forgive? Let me ask you, do you desire to forgive? Will you make concerted steps in your life to forgive? That's evidence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It's a hard question, but the question's not so much about the Lord's Supper. The question's about the Lord's grace. Have you understood and received his grace? You know, Alex, your opening illustration, I think, was what was it? Like a, two people standing back to back, you know, arms across. And, you know, to your point, Hillary's point is, I'm the dude on the right. Uh, you know, it's not, can I get the person on the other side to turn around and me. It's all, I can only control what I do. I mean, God expects me to own what I do. So I have to turn around and that's the act of forgiveness. I mean, I uncross my arms, I face the person, but I can't make that other person, you know, do the same thing. That's not forgiveness. Uh, they may, you know, harbor the conflict and the resentment and you might get to this in the end, but God doesn't expect me to fix that. He expects me to fix myself. And so my unwillingness to forgive and not appropriately come to the Lord's Supper I, I keep my arms crossed and I dig my heels in and that person may be even turned around and, and I refuse to show them my face and I refuse to uh, either be the initiator or the responder to so that's a wonderful point and to zoom that out to our the way we're talking about this I'm not a steward of your response right. I'm a steward of my disposition my attitude so you may never receive it I may go to you and apologize for what I've done and you may never forgive me at that point, my conscience is clear before the Lord. I have done what I ought to do. I've been a good steward. Um, you are not a steward of the other person's response. If you have sought reconciliation with somebody and they did not receive it, you are free from that thing, okay? You do not need to carry the guilt, the burden of that. They are, in that case, playing the role of Jesus Christ. They're playing the role of God by refusing to forgive. Um, all right, good. Third, gently restore. So, Glorify God, uh, get the log out of your own eye. Third, gently restore. When I am estranged from someone else, I need to ask God to help me know how to, be, uh, how to go to that person, how to seek uh, restoration. This, in a lot of cases, is going to be that somebody has sinned against you. How do I go to that person and say, hey, just want you to know this thing that you said... I, I've really struggled with it. I think it, it came from a place in your heart that, uh, that needs to be dealt with, um, needs to be fixed. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on this one. Um, keep the saying, keep short accounts with the Lord. Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah, that was a, that's an old Puritan saying. 
Um, it's a great saying, keep short accounts with the Lord. And it's, it's kind of harkens back to when you used to go to a general store and you'd charge stuff to the store. And then if you're not careful, you'll run up a really long tab that you can't pay off. You know, when we let sin go without repenting, when we let it go unhindered, sometimes it digs so deep that it's really hard to undo. It's hard to make it right. Um, let's move on to the fourth just for sake of time go and be reconciled Um, can Christians sue each other they can uh, sure should you no the scriptures forbid it why because the you're suing your own good, the own part of your body. So the goal ought always be reconciliation, right? Now there's times where what's taken from us needs to be restored to us, and I think the church courts can be helpful there. But that does get complicated. I get it. But part of what Paul's saying there is the end goal needs to be reconciliation. Um, going back to this picture, these, these are two people at odds with each other. Do you know the, old, the origin of the word atonement in English? Good. It's an old English word that meant at one, to be made in unity with each other. And so you think of that image. In the gospel, you know, that's not quite a good picture of the gospel because God's wrath uh, is rightly directed towards us and we have our weapons all up against him. But in the gospel... Two enemies have been reconciled to one another. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans says we were his enemies, and he sought to be reconciled with us. In the gospel, there is power for reconciliation. And if there's enough power to to reconcile a holy, infinite God with sinful man, there is certainly power to reconcile two sinners. Now, the wonderful news is that in glory, if we are truly believers, we will be reconciled to each other forever. And we'll get to see each other. And I don't know if we'll say, I'm really sorry for what I did that I carried around for 80 years. I have no idea if we'll remember that or not. But I know that in glory, we will be reconciled. In the context of the church, it ought to be a foretaste of glory. And that reconciliation ought to be playing out on a daily basis in the church context. Um, If Christ has made atonement for us, has reconciled himself to us, we then ought to be reconciled to one another. And the wonderful news is we can be. So if you are thinking, I just can't forgive, look deeper into the gospel. If God can forgive your sins, which are many, many more than anybody has ever committed against you. If he can forgive your sins and his spirit lives in you, then that spirit is able to make you forgive those who've sinned against you and be reconciled to them. Um, There's lots of practical stuff on this, but I want to talk really quickly about under this topic of reconciliation, what true forgiveness looks like. 
What does it look like to really be reconciled to somebody? First, I will not dwell on this incident. And by the way, it was, this was in newsletter last week or week before, uh, pastoral letter, one of the last two weeks. I will not dwell on this incident. I'll not bring this incident up and use it against you. In other words, if you have forgiven somebody, you don't then get to keep weaponizing it against them. Um, I'll not talk to others about the incident. I'll not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship. One caveat there. In situations of abuse or where a personal relationship is not wise, then that may not be the best course of action. And just like if somebody has um, been convicted of, of a crime against children, we would not then put that person in the nursery. They may be reconciled to God and all of those things, but it would be unwise to put that child in the nursery. That's why we have uh, the Children's Ministry Protection Plan. So there are times where reconciliation can't totally perfectly restore the relationship to where it once was. Um, and that may actually be a good thing for the sake of both parties. But in normal circumstances, reconciliation looks like saying, I will not let the past things that you have done stand between our relationship because we are, in this case, in the church, united in Christ, and we will be together forever in glory. So let's enjoy that reconciling power now. Um, any quick comments before we close? Yes, ma'am. That's a pretty big debate in, in Christian circles is, do we forgive if they haven't asked us to forgive? What do you think? From the heart, in all cases. But what the relationship is after that. Fellowship is another question. Forgiveness is another part. Good. It may not lead to full reconciliation between you and the person, but harboring unforgiveness will destroy you. Be like Christ. Seek to forgive even while we are at enemies with each other. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this time. And I pray that you would use it, not just in our lives individually, but as a body. You have given us a remarkable degree uh, of peace over the last few years. And we long for that to continue. But we also know that the peace of the church is fragile. It's very volatile and that there is an evil one who at any moment would be delighted to disrupt the peace. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to preserve it and to be found faithful. Uh, we thank you for this time together. In Christ's name, amen.